Amen. Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is our Old Testament reading. Thanks once again to the men who sang for us today. Special thanks to David as they begin to make their way out of town. Is this you guys your last Sunday? All right. We will miss you, your family. We'll miss your voices and singing in the choir. Um, thank you so much for being with us these last three years. You know that last decade or so, there's this thing that 18-year-olds talk about called the gap year after high school. After graduation, you just kind of take a year and don't do anything. Maybe you should consider that. Stay among us for an extra 12 months or so. Sing in the choir. We'll give you a meal or two. Old Testament reading, Psalm 15. Let's hear God's holy word together. Let's attend to its reading. For the grass will wither and the flower will fade, but God's word will endure forever. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary, and who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless, and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart, and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong, and casts no slur on his fellow men, who despises a vile man, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury, and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Amen. And then go forward to Matthew chapter 5 for our sermon text this morning. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Here, once again, God's holy word. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes. And your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. George Orwell, the author, said that in a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. In a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. You ask yourself, to what extent are we living in a time of deceit? Well, one of the signs uh, or one of the pieces of evidence unto that is that these days our fact checkers have fact checkers. We sort of had the language of fact checkers enter our lingo in the news media and everything the last seven, eight years or so. And now those fact checkers have fact checkers. Living in a time of, of great deceit, certainly the internet has a lot to do with that and the way that information and false information can spread 
Uh, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that a lie can uh, make it halfway around the world before the truth has opportunity to put its shoes on, and uh, that is you know, even more true now with how quickly things can travel. As God's people, we're called to live truthfully in the service of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. The cautionary tale, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, we teach young children that if they play fast and loose with the truth, people will not believe them when they really need help. You're going to need assistance someday, and if you've always been somebody who has a difficult relationship with the truth, people are not going to believe you if you're always joking, if you're always sarcastic. And this is a good lesson. But living by the truth, speaking the truth, loving the truth, is to become part of our calling as God's people as a way to truly distinguish ourselves from the world of unbelievers. It's not just that we see an advantage in being truthful. It's that living truthfully is one of the most distinct ways in which we glorify God, that as his people we are called to have a particular loving relationship with the truth, for God is the God of truth. Sometimes we wonder, how can we appear differently? In this world, you read the scriptures, and that becomes very clear that we are to be a distinct people, a called out people that live in a particular way as strangers and aliens on the earth, sojourning, going to our heavenly home. Well, what are, what are the ways in which we live different explicitly? We know many of the, uh, of the sins that would be kind of far reached for God's people, that we want to stay away from those. But day to day living, How is it that we appear differently? Well, our relationship with the truth is one of the the clearest ways of that. Lloyd-Jones says this, We are God's people, and a lie which we may tell a private individual may come between that individual's soul and its salvation in Jesus Christ. Everything we do is of tremendous importance. We bear the name of Jesus Christ. And someone sees you being dishonest. Someone sees you lying or you are caught in a lie. You need to understand the kind of ramifications that 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 can have. We're called to live truthfully. Of course, my role growing up in the church in junior high and high school, uh, Sunday school classes and those kinds of things was to always try to find the exceptions. So in these discussions, I would say, well, what do you say to to Rahab, who was in some ways dishonest in hiding the spies in the book of Joshua? What do you say to uh, certain Christians who helped hide Jews during the Holocaust? And certainly these are things that, that might enter the mind of someone who is facing the biblical conviction to always live truthfully. I believe you could just say that these are the exceptions that prove the rule. There may be times of intense trial where Christians decide to do something that appears untruthful, like hiding Jews during the Holocaust or Rahab in the book of Joshua. But we need to understand that normally, and uh, except for the, the greatest of exceptions, we are to live with an unwavering commitment to the truth. Listen to the way one pastor puts it. In our normal daily lives, we are called to live truthfully because it is one of the clearest ways we reflect the character of God and of our Savior. We who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are to speak the truth because truth is characteristic of our holy God and our God delights in truth. Our God's word is truth and we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. Followers of the God who is truth are to put away all falsehood and speak, and speak only the truth. Let's consider these things together. First, we want to look at this question of oaths and vows that Jesus is 
talking about in Matthew chapter 5. So the first main idea is this, have we gotten it all wrong? In other words, our use of oaths and vows, our uh, approach to them and still using them as part of our lives, is that all wrong? Have we gotten it all wrong? This is the position of certain Christians in the Anabaptist tradition mostly, uh, those like the Quakers, they're called the Society of Friends now, who take Jesus' words here in Matthew 5 absolutely literally to the extent that they, they won't even take an oath unto truthfulness in a court of law based on their religious convictions. And as you zoom out on your own life, you should probably realize that many of us, most of us, uh, a lot of our lives and a lot of the things that we do in our lives each and every day come under the purview of vows or oaths that we have made. If you are married, then it's probably the case that every day you are presented with the obligation to do something that you would not otherwise do if you had not taken that oath to your spouse before God. The wedding vows not only give you things that you are to do, it's not just kind of, well, now you have to do this thing. It's also the manner in which you are called to to fulfill your vows. You are to love and to honor and cherish. It's not only just, well, I have to do this thing, I have to check the box. Your, Your wedding vows bind you to do things in a certain way, lovingly, to honor your spouse, to cherish. If you are a Christian parent, then many have taken vows to raise your children in a godly manner at their baptism. Indeed, the entire congregation takes vows to assist the parents in in the same. If you are a Christian, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, for instance, of this church, then each day you evaluate your life, or you could evaluate your life, relative to the vows you have made in the presence of God's people. Listen to the vows that we find in our forms. Do you promise that you love the Lord and that it is your heartfelt desire to serve him according to his word, to forsake the world, to mortify your old nature, and to lead a godly life? That is living the Christian life. You've taken a vow to do that, and every single day reflects the way in which you have fulfilled that vow, to what extent you have. There's another form. There's another profession of faith form that says something very similarly. Do you promise to do all you can to strengthen your love and commitment to Christ? That's a daily commitment. Do you join with the people of God in doing the work of the Lord everywhere? Do you join with all Christians around the world doing the work of the Lord everywhere? All you do in obedience to Christ comes under the view of the vows that you have made. That's why it's important to keep your vows in mind, to remind yourself of them often. Our society is built around basic contours of the Judeo-Christian conviction and and system of ethics. We have oaths of office. Our courts, as mentioned before, are bound by oaths of truthfulness. There are other ways in which these kinds of pledges and swearing build trust around the institutions that buttress our society. Then you read Matthew 5, and the words of Jesus kind of hit you in a certain way. Is he calling us to radically eviscerate all of that kind of thing from our lives? He says, do not swear at all. And this is exactly why groups like the Quakers have said, don't take any vows ever, no vows whatsoever. This creates a bigger problem because we see in Scripture that oaths are permitted and used from God's people to God himself. God is is an oath-making God. 
And there are vows, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New. There are multiple times when the Apostle Paul, in one of the epistles, takes a vow. And I am telling the truth before God. I am not lying. He invokes the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. The overarching message of Scripture as a whole, the biblical theology of oaths and vows, is that rash and irreverent oaths are forbidden. But in settings with a, with a proper solemnity, a solemn tone, and in order to impress upon all of those present the seriousness of the duties being pledged to, or the truthfulness of the matter being attested, oaths and vows are allowed in the, in the sweep of Scripture. The flow of the teaching of the Bible, though, is that oaths and vows should be rare. They should be careful. When you make a vow or an oath, it ought to be approached carefully. And the biblical wisdom suggests that because this is true, your life should not be filled with this kind of language. You should not be the kind of person who needs to take a vow and an oath every time you need to, to tell the truth or every time you want to communicate to people that you are telling the truth. Right? I swear this, I swear that. That is inappropriate. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says this, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When you vow a vow to God... Do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So we have to get this right. If Jesus is saying that this has now changed, no more oaths, no more vows, then most of the Christian church has gotten this wrong for a long time. And we all would have some rearranging to do in our own lives. But you have to pay close attention to what Jesus says. The way that he says this, right? do not swear, but he does not stop there. He goes to lay out more specifically what he means. Right? Further explanation is clarifying. Notice what he does. He uses four examples of bad oaths, oaths that you are not supposed to take, or things by which we are not to swear. And in each one, he shows that God is in control of that realm. Look at, it, look at the, the passage. Do not swear by heaven, for it is God's throne. In other words, don't invoke heaven for your swearing, for your oath, for your vow, because God's in control of that realm. Do not swear by earth, for it is his footstool. Right? God is in control of earth. Don't swear by it. Do not swear by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Most likely there another reference to God. It is God's city. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. These are not just randomly chosen examples by Jesus. He uses these because, if you remember the discussion last week, the passage on divorce, there was a whole discussion within Israel about when it was appropriate to seek divorce and when not to. And the sinful way of approaching that conversation was, well, we can use the commandments of God, we can use the regulations that we find in God's word to kind of get the result that we want. You sort of use it to your own Advantage, And that was the same kind of thing that was going on with oaths and vows. There were extensive rabbinical texts in the, scribes, in the world of the scribes and Pharisees which laid out the kind of swearing, the kind of oaths that you could make 
which would not bind you to do something. So, for instance, swearing by heaven or earth was not binding, nor was swearing by Jerusalem. But if you swore towards Jerusalem, that was binding. To swear by the temple, or to say, well, I swear by the temple, I'm telling the truth, that was not binding, but to swear by the gold of the temple was binding. See, even in, in that day, it usually came down to money. Children engage in these kinds of games, and uh, children, what Pastor Dan is saying is that none of you should do this, but, you know, in, uh, out in the neighborhood, out at the park, sometime, kids engage in these kinds of language games. Perhaps we remember it from childhood. We sensed that someone was being untruthful, and you sensed it. So someone would say to them, well, do you swear? Do you swear that you're telling the truth? The child responds, I swear. Or, you know, I swear on my own grave, or something like that. And someone says, well, do you swear on your mother's grave? And all of a sudden, the child would clam up, because he would feel that you can be flippant, perhaps, about your own mortality, But something feels off about naming someone else's because swearing is invoking kind of an authority and control over something. And what this is, what the rabbis were engaging in in Jesus' time and what Jesus condemns is the construction of a system in which you could be clever about lying, which that's all that it was doing, right? You can swear to the, uh, on the temple, but not on the gold of the temple. You can swear by heaven, or you can swear by earth, but you can't swear if you're facing Jerusalem. This is what Jesus is condemning. He's not rewriting the Old Testament law, he's affirming it. And when he says, do not swear an oath, and then goes on to explain it, he's saying, do not swear a flippant oath by a name other than God in the way that had become so common in his day. That brings us to consider, well, what is a a good oath or a vow? It's something that is made by the name of God alone, or in the name of God alone. The Westminster Confession has a really interesting chapter on oaths and vows for the Christian. It says this, the name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. So, Swearing by anything other than God, inappropriate, and vainly and rashly swearing by God's name, that is inappropriate and sinful as well. It's a breaking of the third commandment. So it goes on to say this, Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. But in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as the Old So a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. So when do you take oaths and vows in your life? You take an oath or a vow in your life oftentimes when you are joining an institution that's larger than yourself. So a husband and a wife coming together, they take vows in marriage because they're saying we are joining this institution that helps to create a a just and a good society that advances the human race, it is a good thing. We realize that it's bigger than ourselves. That's one of the reasons why I really like traditional wedding vows. We kind of all take the same sort of wedding vows to join that institution for the advancement of society. And it's bigger than yourself. Ministers take a vow to God because they are fulfilling the ministry. Ministers will come and go. The ministry of the gospel does not. 
the state, the court of law, the realm of education, these are held together with the solemnity of vows. There may be other, uh, other occasions for it, but those are kind of the most obvious ones. So we have not gotten it all wrong, and the teaching of Jesus is forbidding rash and irreverent vows. But what is he doing in condemning this? He, what he's doing is he's commending to us a heart of truthfulness. That's how he's telling us to live. You need to be people of the truth. You need to love the truth. You need to serve the truth. He expands upon these very things in Matthew chapter 23 in his condemnation of the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Remember what Jesus has done. He's saying, you are not to swear by heaven or earth, by the temple or by your head. Why? Because what is swearing? Again, it's invoking some kind of authority over that by which you swear or are claiming to have some kind of authority. Jesus says, it all exists under God's authority. When a dishonest child says, I swear on my own grave, what is he saying? He's saying that if he is lying, he should die immediately. But Jesus says, life is not yours to give and take. Who are you to think that you can command life to go one way or another? So you have no control of heaven. Don't swear by it. If you have no control of your head, you can't even make one hair change its color, then don't swear by it. In other words, all things in life fall under God's control. All things fall under God's lordship. He, he condemns the Pharisees for convincing themselves that they can engage in these foolish word games. As if they don't come under God's watchful eye. That's really the main point. You swear by the temple and you think that God is not going to hear what you say. You think that he doesn't care that you're lying because you're swearing by heaven or earth, but not by his name? What he's doing is he's, he's commending a positive truthfulness. You need to be lovers of the truth, and it needs to come from your heart. Your heart needs to be that which loves the truth, and if you love the truth from your heart, then you will live in a way that reflects it. How often, as we evaluate this relative to our own lives. How often do we convince ourselves that we can get away with being flippant with the truth here and there as if God does not pay attention to what we are saying? In our world, we have to realize how untruthful things have become, how flippant our society is with the truth. Listen to the words of one pastor. How often do we shamelessly twist a person's words in our online comments to score rhetorical points at the expense of truthfulness? How many times do we share an online friend's post or article without doing anything to verify its truthfulness? How often do we make or like or retweet a dishonest or slanderous comment, knowing full well that it is twisting the truth or denying it altogether? 
How often do we misrepresent the views of a person with whom we disagree, justifying our lies on the grounds that because the person in question is on the other side, the law of God regarding truth and falsehood doesn't apply to our words. If you think you have to lie in order to win, you've already lost. Every single time we contribute to the spread of falsehood online or elsewhere, we are committing an act that our sovereign Lord considers an abomination. Proverbs 6 says this, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Liars show up twice in that list of the seven things that are an abomination to God. The devil was the first liar, and all who bear false witness, lying and slandering, are following in his footsteps. He's called the father of lies. He's the father of liars, and those following in his footsteps are heading to the same eternal destination. So what does God want us to be? He wants us to be truthful people. Who is the person who doesn't need to use the language of swearing in normal, everyday conversation? It's the person who is known to be a person of the truth. And then see how this works. If you are a person of the truth, who loves the truth, who speaks the truth, who makes sacrifices for the truth, when you stand up in those moments of solemn occasion and take an oath or make a vow, how much more significant is it? Perhaps you have seen in your life someone you greatly respected, known to be a person of the truth, stand up and take an oath or a vow, a vow in the midst of the church and That moment was impressed upon you because of its meaningfulness, because of the relationship this person has with the truth. Psalm 15, he speaks truth in his heart. Truth wells up from the heart. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. As God's people were commended to to this, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with, with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Colossians 3, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. God sees all, he hears all. So to convince ourselves that we can play fast and loose with the truth, and he would not see it, we are kidding ourselves. Lloyd-Jones says, we must realize that we are always in the presence of God. We claim we are walking through this world in fellowship with him and with his son, and that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Very well, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, says Paul. He sees and hears everything, every exaggeration, every suggested lie. He hears it all and it hurts and offends. Why? Because he is the spirit of truth. There is no lie anywhere near him. What is the motivation for being a truthful person? It's just that. That God is a God of truth. Have we gotten it all wrong? No. Oaths and vows are appropriate in their own context. But we must get it all right. We must be people of the truth. And why must we be people of the truth? Because God is an unchanging God who is always of the truth and the truth himself. God never changes in his thoughts. He never changes in what he is doing. He never changes in what he wills. Human beings change. They shift like the wind. But God does not and cannot and never will change. A God who was unchanging but was not good would offer us no hope. We'd be stuck in his tyranny. But a God who is good, but not unchanging, would leave us no confidence for the future. 
So we serve and we know a God who never changes and a God who is good. Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 119, verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Why is this important for us to know? Because if we are to be God's people on the earth, then we are to reflect who he is as he gives grace to do so. To remain steadfast under trial. To fulfill our vows even when they hurt. This is not the way of the flesh. This is not the direction in which our sinful flesh would pull us. The flesh bids us to run the other way. To abandon our vows when it's difficult. But God does what he promises even when it comes at great cost. You think of Genesis chapter 22 where God commands Abraham to go and to sacrifice Isaac, but he stops him just before he sacrifices his son. And the reason that he gives for stopping it is because I am the Lord Jireh. I am Jehovah Jireh. I am the God who sees. In other words, I am the God who will see to it that there will be a substitutionary sacrifice. I will provide the ram that you will put on the altar, and I will provide the Son by whom you will be forgiven. God did not abandon His promise to redeem, even when it came at great cost. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Your redemption, your salvation, is founded upon the eternal oath that God has made the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, promising, covenanting to accomplish redemption. It came at great cost to the Father in the giving of the Son. It came at great pain and agony to the Son, who covenanted to take upon himself the humiliation of the human nature and the great pain and agony of the cross. Psalm 15, he swears to his own hurt, and he does not change. Your salvation is founded upon the Son of God who swore to his own hurt and did not change. Did Jesus want to go to the cross? Of course not. Father, if there be a way, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. He took an oath to accomplish your redemption. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He's seated at the right hand of God. Why do you know God peacefully? Why are you assured that you will be in heaven when you die? Because Jesus lived the life of the Psalm 15 man. He swore to his own hurt, and he did not change. Many of us have sworn similar things. For better, for worse. You have sworn to your own hurt, but will you change? As a Christian, you have vowed to be faithful to your Lord, even when it comes at great cost. Will you change? As a minister, I have promised to do all that I can to promote the purity of the church, to stand upon truth. Sometimes this means that I am compelled to do difficult things, but my vows bind me to do all that I can to be true to my word. But behind all of our best efforts to be people of the truth, 
lies the perfectly truthful work of the Savior. If we walk in His strength, if we rely upon Him, God will conform us to the image of His Son, who calls Himself the way and the truth and the life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory, and we ask that you would impress upon us these eternal things. You are a God who is the truth. There is no lying with you. Make us people of the truth as we look to you, look to your character, look to your nature, look to your gospel. We thank you and we praise you for all of these things. In Christ's name, amen.